No regrets. You've heard people proclaim it as a philosophy of life. That's nonsense. It's even dangerous, says Dan Pink in his latest book, The Power of Regret. Everybody has regrets. They're a fundamental part of our lives. And if we reckon with them in fresh and imaginative ways, we can even enlist our regrets to make smarter decisions, perform better at work and school, and deepen our sense of meaning and purpose. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. In this episode, Dan Pink shares what he learned from his World Regret Survey that collected data from more than 16,000 people in 105 countries. Four core regrets emerge that most people have, and Dan breaks each one down for us. He also tells us how we can make better life decisions to avoid the most unforgiving of regrets. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Bob Baxley. And we'll be right back with Dan Pink to talk about regret and how looking backward moves us forward. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. My name is Daniel Pink. I'm a writer. My latest book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. So, Dan, we start these interviews with a set of lightning round questions. So, you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Plane or train? Train. Planned or spontaneous? Yes. Passionate or practical? Practical. Night on the town or quiet evening at home? Totally quiet evening at home. Real friends or deal friends? Real. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Interesting question. Never thought about that, but I am resolutely on team dictionary. Nice. Warrior or sage? Ah, sage. Long shot or sure thing? Pragmatic long shot. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking or doing? Yes. Winning or striving? Striving. Confidence or humility? Both. That's it. Thank you. All right. Dan, when I spoke to you last, it was kind of a unique point. I think it was a couple years ago, maybe at the beginning of the pandemic. And you were actually in the early phases of writing your newest book about regret. And you had shared after we had talked that you were kind of stuck and trying to figure out your way through this book. And I would assume that's kind of like par for the course with writing a lot of books. But to just let us know, like, what brought you to this topic? Why was this an important book for you to write? 
Well, I mean, I think your instincts are right. It was an important book for me to write personally. It ended up being more important than I realized initially. And what got me here was the fact that I had regrets myself. You know, there's an old adage in, especially in behavioral science among real scientists, that all research is me search. And I think that that was sort of the case here. I found myself, to my surprise, based on some life events and whatnot, realizing to my shock and horror that I had mileage on me and that I had room to look back in a way that I never had before. And when I looked back, inevitably, like many people, there were things that I wish I had done and things I wish I, I hadn't done. And the surprise came when I mentioned this very sheepishly to people. And instead of recoiling from this topic of regret, which many people do, which, which I suspected many people would, they instead leaned in. They wanted to talk about it. And that's a very interesting signal for a writer. And so I was actually working on an entirely different book. I put it aside, took a couple months to do some early research, and then wrote an entirely new book proposal and changed course in this big, big project, you know, in the space of about three months. Right around now, when you and I are talking in 2019, I realized that I had a, a better, bigger, more meaningful idea than what I was working on. Why do we see regret as such an undesirable emotion and as a weakness? Well, I mean, it is undesirable in the sense that it makes us feel bad. I mean, regret is a negative emotion. It brings us down. It's unpleasant. What we don't understand is that, well, we don't understand two things, really. One is that this feeling of the discomfort that we get from regret or even the overall sensation of regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience. Regret is ubiquitous in the human experience. Everybody has regrets. And again, I know this from doing the research, especially in something like developmental psychology. Little kids can't experience regret because their brains haven't developed enough. We know from neuroscience and even neurology that certain kinds of brain diseases, brain lesions, certain kinds of neurodegenerative disorders interrupt people's ability to experience regret. So not being able to experience regret is a sign of a disorder. We know that sociopaths don't experience regret. That's obviously a disorder. And so regret is one of our most common emotions. Here's where the puzzle comes in. It's weird. This thing that's unpleasant is also everywhere. So what's the point? Why is it there? And it's there because I don't think we realize that it's useful, that if we treat our regrets properly, not only is it a ubiquitous emotion, it's a tr potentially transformative emotion. The problem is that no one has ever taught us how to deal with it effectively. Yeah, one of the things I found fascinating about the book is a lot of these books, you know, they start with the author having found some social science research, some academic research somewhere, and then they kind of use that as a jumping off point for the book. Like you looked at the research, but then it turned out that like maybe you didn't like some of the conclusions or you didn't think the research was complete enough and you went and created your own survey around this stuff which was fascinating. And then you created a whole different information architecture, if you will, of classifying how people think about regrets. And you know, I'm hoping for those of you who haven't read the book yet, if you could go through sort of the four classes of regrets that you outlined. Thank you for explaining it that way, because I think that's what I was trying to achieve. So, you know, if you have, if you have somebody out there who's making claims, like as I'm doing right now, all right, making claims, this is how the world works. This is what you should do. You know, I think we should listen to people who say that, but I think we should be skeptical. I think we should be generously skeptical and always ask them the question, how do you know that? All right. You're telling me to do X or do Y. You're telling me that this is true and this is not true. How do you know? I always want to be very explicit about how I know. I always want to show my work. And in this case, there were kind of three legs of the stool in how I knew. One was looking at 
an existing body of research, as I mentioned, in developmental psychology and social psychology in neuroscience and cognitive science that has studied this emotion for 60 years. Okay, so that's it. And one of the things that I do in my books, sometimes to the chagrin of my publisher, is that I always put in footnotes, not endnotes at the end where people can look, but literally, if I make a claim, it's, you know, it says da, 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 period, superscript 43, all right? And so you can say, okay, he's saying the study says this, here is the footnote, you can go and you can check it out, okay? I'm gonna show my work. I think that's, I think that's actually really important. But as, exactly as you say, I found some inadequacies in the existing research. So I did two pieces of research. One was what I call the American Regret Project, which was the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. Now, I think what's mildly interesting about that is that that would have been both technically and cost prohibitive when I first started writing books. And now it's much more my favorite. So I think it's super cool, really great phenomenon. And what I was looking there was... I was really looking at doing a very, very large sample of the U.S. population to try to find demographic differences in what people regretted, how they regretted, so forth. And I was looking for a categorization of regret. Okay, So both of those came up fairly short. It turned out that there weren't that many demographic differences and that people regretted a lot of stuff. Now, third leg of the stool was something called the World Regret Survey, where I collected regrets from all over the world. This is astonishing. We ended up with a database. Our database now is well over 21,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. It's, it's incredible. And there, I think I was able to see things that were there already, but the previous researchers hadn't seen because of the way they were coming at the problem. So that's my extraordinarily long-winded account of how I know. Yeah. So then you went back and you must have had this amazing experience. Maybe you could talk about a little bit of like reading all those regrets. And then from that, somehow through some intuition, you created this different information architecture because the existing research at the time was mostly contextual around, oh, I had educational regrets, I had career regrets, and you went in a completely different direction. Yeah, well, I went in a completely different direction in part because I did in my quantitative survey, the American Regret Project, I asked people for regret and then I had them slot them into the categories that we had been using, exactly as you said, education regret, romance regret, finance regret, whatever. And I found it was all over the place. That's actually what previous researchers have found too. It's all over the place. And to me, I said, there's gotta be something else going on here. Now, in the World Regret Survey, the design of that was is basically a, a collection tool. I wanted to find stories and rich emotional and narrative richness that I couldn't in a quantitative survey. It ended up being that we got such a large response that I ended up doing a, a pretty massive piece of qualitative research. And what I found was that when I read through these regrets, and I haven't read through all of them, but I did read through the first 15,000 of them, is that something else was going on. That when you actually listen to what people were saying, you realize that the existing categories, very sensible existing categories, were useful, but they weren't the full story. Let me come down to a construal level here and be concrete here, all right? So this is what I mean by that. All right, here we go. I have people in this database who say, X years ago, there was a man or woman I really liked, I wanted to ask him or her out on a date, but I was too chicken to, and I've regretted it ever since. Clearly a romance regret. A surprising number of American college graduates say, oh man, if only I'd studied abroad when I was in school. I didn't want to do it because I was a little scared to go over to, okay, oh, okay, that's an education regret. Then I have a lot from around the world. I regret that I didn't start a business, that I stayed in this crappy lackluster job and didn't go out on my own, all right? That's a career regret. So those are obviously in different categories, except when you read through them, 
as I did, they're the same regret. It's basically the regret that says, I'm at a juncture in my life. I can play it safe or I can take the chance. And I didn't take the chance. And now I regret it. And so the domain of life was part of the story, but the bigger story was just one layer beneath. And that's what I found. And when you look at the language that people use, they use very similar language to describe not starting a business as they do not asking somebody out on a date. That's one of the four categories is what I call a boldness regret if only I'd taken the chance. Another interesting example of that would be what I call foundation regrets if only I'd done the work. I got plenty of people who say, I spent too much and saved too little. And now I'm in not good financial situation. Okay, that's clearly a financial regret. But I also have people who say, using very, very similar language, ah, oh, I didn't eat right or exercise, and now I'm in physically bad shape. But those are very similar, okay? It's basically regrets about small decisions early that accumulate to terrible consequences later. Health, education, finance. So that's a foundation regret. And then just very quickly, there's also the third category is moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who, again, at a juncture, can do the right thing, can do the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing. They regret it. And then there are connection regrets, which are about relationships where that it come apart. You want to reach out. You want to do something, but you don't because you feel awkward. You think it's not going to be reciprocated. And then it drifts apart even more. So connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And when you go deep into these regrets, so what you find is with remarkable similarity around the world, these are the four things that people seem to regret. Then you take those four things and you relate them to human needs, which I thought was really an interesting way of utilizing that framework. Here's the thing. What I discovered is that when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. That's something that I didn't really immediately grok. And it's something that I realized in my own life. All right. So if you think about today, all right, I don't know how many decisions I made today, but or let's say about yesterday. Okay. So I made some decisions yesterday. I don't remember most of them. All right. Let alone do any of them decisions or indecisions bother me. But if I have a decision or indecision from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and it still bugs me today, that tells me something, all right? That's a pretty strong signal. And what I realize is that, again, when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. And if around the world people end up regretting the same four things, then the reverse image of that is they end up probably valuing the same four things. And so foundation regrets suggest that we value stability in our lives. We don't like having instability or precariousness, whether it's financial or health or whatever. Boldness. Boldness regrets, I think, are about our yearning, our desire, our need for growth and learning and just doing something. Moral regrets, I'm convinced that human beings are moral animals, that most of us want to do the right thing. Most of us usually do do the right thing. And when we don't do the right thing, more often than not, we feel terrible about it. And then finally, our connection regrets, which are basically about love, not only romantic love, but just the fuller representation of love. And so in this weird way, this negative emotion tells us what actually matters most in life. I want to go back to connection regrets for a second, because you, you know, conducted this survey, obviously, during a worldwide pandemic. And I think just in general, people were thinking, you know, going back and thinking about the connections that they've had, or they made, or they've lost, or, or whatever. Do you think that connection regrets might have been more prominent in your survey than you were expecting because of the pandemic? Or do you think it would have been the same? It could be. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Maybe a little bit. I think that the one effect of the pandemic was that 
I was able to get people perhaps in a more reflective moment than I would have if I had done it another time. I think that people were more willing to reflect. Now, you're right. Your instincts are possibly right because connection regrets were the largest category of regrets. But I didn't find that super surprising. What regrets weigh on us the most and what should we do to mitigate that? It depends on the person. So again, it's like these four regrets seem to be pretty prevalent. And what I don't know, because I didn't ask this question to do this research, is whether people generally have regrets in all these categories or whether people are more over-indexed on one category. I do know that the connection regrets were the largest category and boldness regrets were the second largest category. I don't have any insight beyond that. So I don't know whether everybody always has regrets in all four categories or whether connection regrets are more debilitating than foundation regrets. I just don't know. The one thing that I do know, and again, going back to how do you know, going back to this public opinion survey where, you know, the sample of 4,489 Americans, asking them questions about their regret, and then looking for demographic differences, say between men and women and African-Americans and white people and so forth, is that there weren't that many demographic differences, but there was one big one. I think it goes to your question. And it is that when we are young, we tend to have equal numbers of regrets of action, what I did, and inaction, what I didn't do. Okay. But then as we age and not even age very much, I mean, I'm picturing the chart in my head. It's very hard to do a chart on audio. I can describe it, but basically you have like these lines that are together and then suddenly they diverge like the mouth of an, of an alligator. Okay. So action regrets go down over time and inaction regrets go up over time so that when you're in your fifties and sixties, especially there's a massive gap And what I found was very robust and also quite consistent with what others had found too. That over time, we tend to regret what we didn't do more than what we did. And I think that there is something profoundly interesting and perhaps important in that. I think a lot of times for action regrets, what happens is that we can do something about them. So I have a lot of regrets about bullying. So people have done this. They bullied somebody early in their life. 20 years later, 25 years later, it still bothers them. They go back and try to you know, make amends, restitution for that. You know, if you've swindled somebody, you can make them whole, right? So you can do something about those kinds of action regrets. The other thing is that with action regrets, people can sometimes reduce the psychological sting by trying to find something good about it. So the best example of that from the data are people, I, I'm actually, I think it was almost all women who said, oh, my big regret was marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. With inaction regrets, you can't do that. And so they stick around. What's more is that I think that the two biggest categories that I have, boldness and connection regrets, those are almost always regrets of inaction themselves. I think it, what it tells us is that we should have a slight bias for action, that having a bias for action is important. Now, let me lengthen this already lengthy answer with a reference to something that you guys had already asked. In the lightning round earlier, which is now like, what, four days ago, the lightning, <laughs> at the lightning round, Bob had asked me, thinking or doing? And on that one, I said yes, because I didn't want to get into a philosophical argument with you, but I think that thinking and doing are much more similar than we, than we realize, and that the way that they interact is very different from the way, at least that I was taught. We tend to think that we have to sort of figure things out and then act and use that knowledge and those insights 
in order to act. What we don't realize, but seems to be manifestly true in my own experience, but also in the research, is that acting, doing, is a form of thinking. That when we do things, the very act of doing stuff helps us figure things out. So I, I just think that doing is a form of thinking. And so all these things combined, to me, suggest that we should have a slight bias for action. Not in all cases for all things, but in general, ask that person out on a date. Okay? Oh, I might get rejected. Just act. All right? You see an injustice in the world. And, oh, should I speak up? Should I not speak up? Speak up. Oh, man, I haven't talked to my friend John for, you know, seven years. It's going to be really awkward if I reach out and he might not get... reach out. I think that to me is the, is the big takeaway there. I think people are, are scared of the repercussions, right? And so they don't act because they're scared of what the result is going to be. But if they do act, they at least, I'm using at least now, they at least know what the action was and they can recover from it, right? That's a big part of it. There are a lot of interesting points in there. Let's go back to like not asking somebody out on a date. The people who I talk to have that regret. And it's a lot of people, more than I would have expected. The people who say that, oh, if I only had asked him out on a date, you know, oh my God, there's this guy and I really liked him. I wish I had asked him out. They're not saying if I had asked him out, I'd gotten married and be living this beautiful life. Would he have said yes? They just want to know. Like they want to kind of mitigate that uncertainty. They also, the injury is, is an injury of not stepping up when they had a chance. I think that that is a part of it. The other thing though, is that people are totally over-indexed. They overestimate how much risk there is or they overestimate how much risk there actually is. They're not cold-blooded and calculating enough. I wish there would be sort of like an emotional spreadsheet where people could actually model the amount of risk they actually face in doing something like this. So that's true in a lot of the boldness regrets. And they realize this sometimes retrospectively. It's like, oh my God, I thought it was so risky to take a junior year abroad, but God, that wasn't a risk. You know, what was I thinking? I was completely overstating that. And, and when you think about some of these connection regrets where people feel awkward about reaching out, when they do reach out, it's always way less awkward than they think. Again, so we want to sort of you know, extract a kind of meta takeaway from all of this. I really do think that we should have a slight bias for action. I'm not encouraging people to go crazy and just do crazy, risky things all the time. But I think what we want to do is we want to sort of dial up that bias for action just a bit in almost all of us. And we also have to get out of our way, right? Right. I, I think that what's preventing us from turning up that notch a little bit in favor of bias for action is our own hands pulling us back in the other direction. You know, again, I'm going to go back to this idea of the information architecture of regrets. And it's not only the four buckets you created, but it's also the label you gave it. Like boldness is a great label because you could have called it risk regrets. And you didn't. It wasn't people were regretting that they did or didn't take a risk, you're classifying things people were regretting or not regretting whether or not they were bold in the moment. And that's part of the uh, the not doing things. It's like that opportunity goes by, you know, and it's like, oh, I, I missed it. You know, I had the chance to grab the brass ring or whatever it would have been. And I let that moment pass. A lot of times it's not coming back. Yeah. But that word boldness, that's what I heard people saying, literally. So I think what's interesting is that people would say, ah, oh, I wish I had been bolder in my romantic life. I wish I had been bolder in my career. Again, that's the thing about going through and reading these things and looking for the language and realizing that people are using identical language in different domains of life. When I hear people talking about boldness a lot, and they're talking about it across different fields of their life, that to me is telling me something. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting they didn't say, I wish I'd taken on more risk. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'd have to go back and look, but if I were to do a search for the word risk, I don't think I would find that much. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah, and you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. It seems like with regret, there's this kind of glitch in the way the human mind processes time. You talked about over-indexing the risk. It's recognizing the repercussions in this moment, but not being able to wait or understand the repercussions further down the line, which is a lot like people's inability to save for retirement because they can't think of their future self, only their current self. And you talk a little bit about this, well, quite a bit about you know time and the book, time and storytelling. Could you break that down for us a bit? I think it's a really good point. I mean, you know, one of the great things about our brains is that we can travel in time in our heads. That's again why people with brain damage or kids who not fully developed brains can't process the regret. It's incredibly complicated and sophisticated. What I do if I'm experiencing regret is that in my head I get in a time machine, I go back in time. I imagine what happened, but then I imagine I basically change the circumstances a little bit, right? Then I get back in my time machine to today, but today is now different because of what I did in the past. I mean, that's incredibly sophisticated. It's amazing. I agree. I think it's an amazing thing. And so the question then becomes, how do we enlist this incredible power as something to improve our lives rather than lead to wallowing and rumination and so forth? And I think that there is a technique that we can use that I like, and I think it's powerful to use our time traveling abilities and this cluster of four regrets to make better decisions in the moment and avert the very problem, Aaron, that you're talking about. So one of the things you can do is like you're making a decision now about doing X, Y, or Z, and you're not sure what to do. One technique that I like is to say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a phone call to yourself 10 years from now. I want you to talk to the you of 2032. So the you of 2032 is 10 years older than you are right now, which is always very disconcerting to people. Just in the same way the age they are now, 10 years ago, that would have seemed almost unimaginable, right? 
So you place a phone call to the you of 10 years from now. What would the you of 10 years from now want you to do? And I think we know pretty well because I think that the you of 10 years from now, the me of 10 years from now, the you, all you guys 10 years from now are going to be pretty similar to those 21,000 people who told me they regret. So if I'm at this point in my life where I have almost certainly crossed the 50-yard line of my life, I have more time behind me than I have ahead of me, which is a daunting thing, right? So here I am at this point in my life. I have a life of incredible privilege. If I have a moment right now to do something that is adventurous and bold and significant, that leads to learning and growth, and I say, I don't know, I'm a little bit, it's a little risky. The me of 10 years from now is going to be pissed at that decision. It's very clear to me, right? If I have a moment now and I say, I can do the right thing, I can do the wrong thing, I do the wrong thing, the me of 10 years from now is not going to be happy, right? If we use that kind of self-distancing technique and just say, let's use these time travel powers for good, we can get around, Aaron, what you're talking about, being imprisoned in the present, take a step back, consult a person we haven't met yet, the us of 10 years from now, who's going to give us, I think, some pretty good advice. The me of 10 years from now is not going to care what I had for lunch today. The me of 10 years from now is not going to care whether today I wore my Havana Marathon t-shirt or my Philadelphia Half Marathon t-shirt or whatever. But the me of 10 years from now is going to care about, did I build a stable foundation for myself and for my family? Did I do the right thing? Did I build connections with other people built around love? And most of the other stuff, the me of 10 years from now is not going to care about. Yeah, a lot of the boldness regrets you highlighted, they seem to spin around the idea of somebody who's going to be embarrassed at the outcome. Like when you're talking about people overcalculating the risk, it's a little bit like embarrassment. Embarrassment's such a short-term kind of thing. And you're just biasing for that. But it's similar. There's embarrassment and there's it's a sibling of what, what we were talking about before about when Meredith is saying you're standing your own way, especially with connection regrets. The word that came up all the time in connection regrets were awkwardness. It's awkward, but it's a very good point. Awkwardness and embarrassment, they're both short term and they're almost always less than we fear. And yet it can keep us from things that actually matter a lot. I had so many people who I talked to who wanted to reach out to a friend and felt awkward about it. And then the friend died. They're bugged by that for the rest of their life. So that moment of very, very brief and probably not too high amplitude moment of awkwardness actually ended up costing them way more psychological harm in the future. Yeah, it's like that embarrassment awkwardness is a very expensive emotion to indulge. Yes, I agree. I think that in general, and there's some interesting research on this, I I think that in general, that what we need to do is in some ways reframe awkwardness, reframe discomfort, reframe awkwardness and discomfort as an opportunity. I'm feeling discomfort. I'm feeling awkward. That must mean that what I'm doing is actually a stretch and gives me the chance to learn and grow. That sounds a little like sort of gooey, but I actually think there's something to that. Yeah, It's almost like those emotions are telling, it's a way of your body telling you that you're about to embark in a boldness opportunity. Yeah, that it's an opportunity. I mean, there's some interesting research on reframing. So for instance, reframing emotions. So there's some very good research from Allison Woodbrooks at Harvard having to do with people who feel nervous. All right. And one of the things that she found, they feel nervous before giving a talk. They feel nervous before saying something in a meeting or whatever. And we all know what it's like to feel nervous. And what she found is that people can overcome that nervousness and actually perform at a high level if they reframe, they say, I'm not, what I'm feeling now, this nervousness, that's not nervous, I'm just excited. I'm excited about the opportunity to give this speech. I'm excited about this opportunity to 
speak up in this meeting and something like that. And I, I think there's a chance to reframe discomfort, awkwardness, embarrassment in that way, saying, oh, I'm feeling awkward. That must mean that I'm doing something that's a little bit outside of my zone of comfort. And that's how people learn and grow. This also plays into your framework around the actual self versus the ideal self versus the ought self. All those sort of seem like they're time traveling as well. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that at all. Well, I mean, this is a theory, you know, it's in psychology for like the last 40 years about how we have these different kinds of selves. You know, the actual self is who I am now or who I think I am now. The ideal self is who I can aspire to be. I think you're right. I think it's just a, another mechanism for traveling through time and trying to make better decisions in the moment through time travel. Now, again, the technique of time travel to make decisions isn't always a great idea. There are times when we anticipate our regret, we actually think we're going to regret things that we might not actually regret. The best example of this is the research on multiple choice tests, where when I was taking multiple choice tests as a kid, they always said, don't change your answer, always go with your first instinct. And people believe that. And what the research says is that actually you should change your answer, right? Why do people not do it? People don't do it because they imagine a scenario where they switch from a right answer to a wrong answer. And that is so much more painful to them than simply sticking with a wrong answer that they avoid a smart decision because they've over-anticipated particular regret. So human beings are imperfect decision-making machines, to put it mildly. Speaking of imperfect decision-making, you point out in your book, there's a, a famous regret minimization framework that Jeff Bezos employs that a lot of people admire him and kind of look to him for that guidance. Where is Jeff Bezos going wrong with that framework? I think that he's right in a big way. I don't think that he's fully right. So here's, here's what I mean by that. I, I don't think that we should minimize all of our future regrets. I think that we should optimize our regrets. So what he said famously is that when he was deciding whether to start Amazon, his boss at his bank said, hey, you need to think about this. This is like kind of a crazy idea. And he, Bezos, said, well, I thought of myself at age 80 looking back and said, what am I going to regret? I think that itself is healthy. But if I spend all my time trying to think about what I'm going to regret, I think I'm going to be paralyzed here. You know, so if I say, OK, what should I have for dinner tonight? Should I have shrimp fried rice or should I have turkey tetrazzini or whatever, you know? It's like, oh, which am I going to regret <laughs> later on? You know, it's like, you know, or, you know, even, you know, should I do this podcast with this a dynamic threesome? I don't know. Should I, I might regret it. You know, I think what you have to do is you have to actually really optimize and reduce your regrets on those four big categories. You want to spend a lot of time making the right decisions and reducing regrets about your foundation, reducing regrets about boldness, reducing regrets about morality, reducing regrets about connection. I think there you want to go all in and really reduce those. But I think a lot of the decisions we make, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're trying to maximize all those decisions, you're going to drive yourself bonkers. Most decisions don't matter. And so we should just be good enough at a lot of those decisions, but maximize on the ones that we know are going to matter over time. And I do think that Bezos' underlying decision was he was avoiding a boldness regret. You know, I think if Bezos is saying, oh, what am I going to regret more in 10 years wearing this tight-fitting Hawaiian shirt at my lavish party or that tight-fitting Hawaiian shirt at my lavish party? I don't think that's ultimately going to matter that we have to ask, so you've done all this research on regret, and you said all research is ultimately me-search. So what did you learn personally for yourself looking back on the regrets that you had bringing into this project, and how did it change you? I think that the biggest one for me was in this area of connection regrets. I was somebody who was very much like the 
people who I talked to, where I had, you know, friendships or whatever. What I realized that a lot of these relationships, they come apart in very undramatic ways. They just kind of drift apart. And that's happened to me. And I always said, oh, man, I really should reach out to blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, it's going to be really awkward if I do that because I haven't talked to him for seven years. And he's going to think it's really weird. So I'm not going to do that. And then I, like two years later, it's like, oh, I really should reach out to blah, blah, blah. Oh, man, now it's been nine years. And, you know, uh, and I was totally that kind of person. And now I've changed my ways. I realized that if I'm at a juncture where I'm contemplating, should I reach out? Should I not reach out? Being at that juncture answers the question. If I'm at that juncture, I know what to do. So that's been a big change in my behavior. So your first book comes out in 2001. You've been publishing books for 21 years now. And you said early in the lightning round, when I asked you, Warrior Sage, you went for Sage. I'm sort of curious, a couple of things. One, are there themes that you think have, have fueled through all your books, like some threads that you would pull through that? And then also as an author, do you see yourself having it all shifted from your first book, which is Free Agent Nation, a little bit more on the, perhaps on the warrior side. And as you come into now 21 years later in your mid fifties, you're sort of describing yourself more as a sage. Do you feel those themes haven't changed in your life? I don't think, okay, so, okay. So let's go back to the warrior and sage <laughs> thing here too. Yeah. So I chose sage largely because warrior is typically zero sum and sage is typically positive sum. That was the big reason for that. Warriors have wins and losses. Sages, I think, are about expanding the pie. So that's why that's why I chose that. Yeah, so that's consistent with your response to winning or striving as well, where you said striving. I said strive. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. James Karst wrote about this, what, 40, 50, 50 years ago, where he wrote about uh, finite games and infinite games. The goal of a finite game is to win. The goal of an infinite game is to keep playing. And so I think that like infinite games and positive sum I think that's how people do their best work. And I actually think that it is, in many ways, it's not the only operating system of the world, but it's a big part of the operating system of the world. I do think that that's the overly articulated answer about Warrior and Sage. As for your actual question, are there underlying themes? I don't know. I didn't, 21 years ago, have this kind of giant strategic plan for, okay, I'm going to write this book. Then I'm going to do that one and that, that one, and it's going to lead to this thing. I, I'm just, that's not how I roll. Looking back, can you see themes? I mean, maybe things you were working on that were just carrying your interests? I think that you can see connections retrospectively. I don't want to suggest that the connections were intentional, though. But I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. So let's go back to that first book, Free Agent Nation. I thought I was writing a book about economics. And when I went out, this is about the rise of people working for themselves, right? In the early, very, very early days of that. I thought I was writing a book about economics, but in my research, I went out and I interviewed hundreds of people who were going out on their own. I thought it was basically writing a book about post-industrial capitalism, truly. And when I went out and actually did the research and interviewed people, not a single one of them mentioned anything about post-industrial capitalism. They ended up mentioning things <laughs> about, I wanted to live an authentic life. I wanted to spend more time with my family. They ended up being much more about psychology and the search for meaning. And I think if there's anything that comes out in a lot of the books that I've written is that one common thread in all of them is that I do think that human beings in general are meaning-seeking creatures. And that at some level, we want to know, like, okay, what's the point of it all? Why am I here? What is a good life? I didn't start out saying, I am going to pose that question and try to answer it. And my life's work is going to be about trying to answer, not at all, but when I pursue topics, to my surprise, often, 
they've frequently led back to that issue. We want to put you in your time machine and do a little bit of reverse mentoring. It's sort of easy to look back on your life and say, like, here's what I've learned and passed on the wisdom of today to your younger self. But if you could imagine your 25-year-old self, what would that Dan tell the today Dan? I think that he would say, uh, huh, this is not where I expected you'd be. And the me of today would say, but I'm pretty happy. And he said, oh, okay, cool. You know, I think that would be the conversation. I, I don't think that the me of 25 years had a lot of advice to offer because I don't think he knew anything. Dan, where can people learn more about you and your book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward? Good place to start is my website, danpink.com. And there's all kinds of free resources and newsletter and all kinds of good free stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, guys. That was a lot of fun. You know, the one thing that I really liked, and I think the one thing that we kicked off with was that all research is me search. And I'd never really thought about it that way, but it's so true. I think all of the things that we dive in and dig into a little bit more is really because we're curious. He was curious, and that's why he wrote this book. And I think that's, I don't know, I just think that's an awesome way to think about things and approach life. We have to imagine when these, when, you know, when authors like him or Brad or, you know, Karen or Catherine, like whoever, when they seek out to start writing these books, there's something interesting that sparks them wanting to do the book. It's the same reason we started this podcast, right? So any book you look at, there's very few books that are just written to get a market response, right? Nobody really writes these books because they think they're going to get rich selling them. And they say, oh, I want to go learn about that topic, which speaks to something going on with who they are in that moment and who they're trying to become. Yeah, but he took it to the next level with the World Regret Survey and then the survey that he did in America. I mean, just hearing that there are over 21,000 people who have submitted a regret. I mean, that is some amazing data. But the fact that he's read the majority of it is even more impressive. Yeah, he read 15,000. Just seeing the patterns, like that's an invaluable piece of information that he turns into knowledge and wisdom and that framework for us, the buckets of regret, foundational, boldness, moral, and connection. And I think I probably have regrets that fall into each category, some more acute than others. The foundational ones I thought were interesting in the book because those were ones that people didn't really confront until later in life. And those were the most damaging because at that point, it's too late. You know, people who regretted not exercising, not eating right, regretted not quitting smoking or not saving for retirement, et cetera. When you recognize that and the regret is upon you, there's just like, there's no recourse. Yeah, it's the thing with all those foundation regrets is you have to be making the deposits in those little accounts every day. You know, every workout is a little deposit into your health savings account. The paycheck, it's like just a little bit of savings. You got to be preparing for something down the road. It goes to something I think you brought up early, Meredith, about how we trade off our short-term immediate need for like the long-term benefit. You have to really be able to hold in your head that the future is coming and I am going to be around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. And so Bob of today has to do something to help Bob of 2040. Because barring tragedy, Bob of 2040 is going to be there soon enough. You know? you know, that makes me think about something. I wonder if people who, quote unquote, live in the moment, 
have more regrets in the future? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways of looking at that because living in the moment could also minimize your boldness regrets. That could be like, hey, I'm going to go ask that person out or go on this adventure, whatever that is. So, you know, it could kind of manifest in different ways. Although he takes that on in the book a little bit. And there's that funny anecdote about the guy that got the no regrets tattoo. And then, you know, by chapter two, he's getting it removed, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've definitely known people who in their younger years would say, you know, live with no regrets. I don't know too many older people that live that way. And he dismantles that in the book, like this romantic idea of living with no regrets. A, it's impossible. That regret is foundational. It's a learning tool. It helps us grow and live a more fulfilling, healthy life. And B, you know, the idea of living with no regrets actually is a disadvantage because you're not reflecting on your past and letting that inform your future behavior. Where's that thinking doing loop that he talked about both in the book and a little bit in the interview, you know, where I'm, I'm thinking in order to inform action and then I'm going to evaluate the results of that action. I'm going to put that back into my thinking cycle. That's how I'm going to get better and improve and live a happier, more fulfilling life. There was one piece that he left out when we were talking with him. He said in the book, feeling is for thinking, thinking is for doing. So feeling is part of that process. And he talked about in the book how feeling is, uh, it's sometimes denigrated as like if, if our feelings are driving our behavior, then maybe we're not making good choices. But he talks about how feelings actually will help us process our thoughts, which then can help us make good decisions and shape our behavior. Well, I was thinking about how he started talking about how you need to reframe discomfort and awkwardness. And I'd never really thought about it like that. I think there needs to be more of that and there needs to be more vocalization out there, not only in how we live our everyday lives, but how we bring ourselves to work and how we bring ourselves to our family and how we can start to reframe that a little bit more and be more conscious of it because awkwardness is only a temporary moment. You don't think about something 10 years ago that was awkward. I mean, maybe you do. Maybe there's some like big life moments that you're like, that was awkward. But nine times out of 10, you're not. And so how do you take a step back on your daily lives and just start to reframe these things kind of one by one and see where they get you? And maybe it becomes a more, I don't know, prominent pattern in how you how you behave and how you take action. It's also a little bit of no longer trying to separate feeling from thinking, right? They're continuums of the same thing. Like your emotional, your brain and your body is kicking up certain emotions. And those are inputs. Those are really useful inputs to your conscious mind to evaluate. Your emotions are trying to tell you something and you should try to calculate on those and understand them as part of your thinking process before you make a decision. Whereas, you know, I often feel, I think there's a lot of pressure in, at least in the modern Western world to kind of put your emotions aside. You know, don't be emotional. Don't get upset. It's like, well, well, no, I'm upset because there's something in me that really cares. So maybe I should use that emotion of upset to inform my thinking about what is it here that I really care so much about. You know, to add to that is I think we also are incredibly hard on ourselves. And I think that's where regret comes into play and becomes more prominent is because we regret either doing the action or not doing the action, or we're incredibly harder on ourselves if we do the action and it doesn't end up the way that we want it. And it's kind of like we need to give ourselves permission to just be human 
and not overanalyze things and not overthink things and just kind of let things happen a little bit. And not always feel like you have to do the perfect thing. Exactly. You know, this is this phrase that I often uh, refer to. I don't want to should on myself. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And if I don't do that, then I'll regret, you know, I'll regret that I slept in Saturday morning and I didn't go exercise or whatever it is, like the perfect thing that I should be doing. There are times where a little bit of latitude is not a bad thing. Well, I think what he was getting at, and we've heard it from a lot of our other guests as well, is that life is this, you know, long-term, positive-sum, infinite game. You know, there is no moment when everything gets done. There is no winning. And you won't ever have it figured out. Yeah, yeah. It's just getting on to the next thing, which is, you know, part of why we had that lightning round question about winning versus striving, you know, and he was very clearly in the striving camp, which I think is right. I mean, that is the only way you're going to get to a life of well-being. You know, to that end, one of the things I mentioned before we started the interview with him was how his four buckets of regrets and how each of those then maps to a human need. So just to go through that briefly, there was foundational regrets, which speaks to the need for stability, boldness regrets, which speaks to the need for growth, moral regrets for goodness, and then connection regrets for love. And I've actually found that to be a really interesting framework to think about all the different activities in my life. So when I'm getting to, you know, whatever my monthly planning cycle, and I'm trying to think about all the different projects I have going on at work and my personal life with this podcast, other learning activities and things, I'm now sort of classifying them into those buckets. And I'm sort of using that as a portfolio framework, if you will, sort of like an asset allocation structure. I'm saying, oh, well, there's four big buckets here, and I'm trying to make sure I'm paying attention to all four of those. For me, I found it to be like a super extremely useful framework for thinking about all these different activities that I'm taking on as I'm trying to put together a, a life that's kind of filled with a patchwork of things that collectively need to mean something. But like, how do you, how do you really understand how they all intersect and support one another? Yeah, it's such a, a practical framework that's not just about looking backwards, but really about thinking about now and tomorrow. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.